Welcome, ah. everyone, to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of NYC. And only yeah, good evening. Rocking in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Run DMC, everybody. Little run DMC for you. So yeah. we tonight we are graced by his presence, a senior lecturer of creative oh, yeah, yeah. of creative media. I always thought as known as a professor, but I mean I know there's a lot of hard work goes into being a professor. That's right. But he no, he is he is a professor, a professor of music. No, no, no. Professor Senior lecturer. Hang on, hang on. Senior lecturer, professor, technician. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Let's give it even better. Turntable technician. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah. Okay. Uh, part of an institution of a famous brand called the Hacienda, yep. along with <laughs> Mike Pickering from M People, created a humongous homogenous story that is huge the story mm -hmm. bigger than us at times because oh, absolutely it's huge yeah. than us okay absolutely um also has been blessed to have given us the hacienda classical and he'll talk oh god yeah yeah we'll talk about that as well he is a soul boy by heart Loves i think so yeah. music he rides a, a bike in the mud to get a mountain bike, yeah. He's a mountain biker. He's a remixer. He's a producer. And don't forget, he's a presenter. Because Grandpa yeah. presented a lot of radio shows. And I want mm -hmm. to thank him also for always supporting Lenny Fontana and Karmic Power Records and all the artists and all the yeah. artists that he's been involved in. Mm -hmm. um, quick little story, real quick before we start, because we're getting to the first story, which was. I walked into, uh, what was it, Ministry of Sound? Yes. Like, packed. And I went up in the booth. I'm hanging out with him. And he's, I just mentioned in his ear, I said, I got this new track I just mixed. Um, would you want to play it? And he says, you got it with you? I said, no, it's in the booth. Because in those days, I came from two other gigs. He says, no. Yeah. Okay. I gave him the, the acetate. Didn't even listen to it. Took it from me. Put it on the turntable. And rock the whole thing. Crowd well, if if Lenny Fontana gives you an acetate, then you play it. <laughs> okay. So there's yeah. not many people I would do that to, you know. I, I mean that now the modern equivalent is people will turn up and say, I've got something on my phone or my USB, and then you just go, go, go away. Yeah, USB. You know? How is that? Yeah. Anyway, I so grabbed, grabbed it from the, I, I literally like bought it like the Holy Grail. I bought it one like this. I could hear, like they can hear the music and hand it to, and it looked like a movie. And the place, you know, the, the smoke and it's hot and then people going crazy, minutes like this. And I think it was a Hacienda night he was doing. This is early 90s. Early. Yeah, well, when, when Ministry Sound opened, I was the uh, original Friday night resident. Um, it was me, Paul Oakenfold, and guests, you know. So it would probably have been a Friday night in the early days when the DJ booth was in a different part of the main room. Yes, yeah. if, when they moved it from the original upstairs and then yeah. down to the first side of the room, which is now when you walk in, yeah, in the room it's on the other side. But that was the first secondary booth from when the original. That's right. Yeah. So welcome and thank you for gracing us, Your Excellency, from the UK. Steady. So, First question we ask everyone because the numbers are screaming. We're already starting. They're starting to bang. How does music find you or 
you find music as a young lad? Well, that's a very easy question to answer. My grandpa, my late grandpa, who was my mum's dad, had his own big band. He had his own orchestra, the George Wood Orchestra, based out of Aberdeen in Scotland. And I spent most summers in Aberdeen uh, with my grandparents. And uh, I just thought he was amazing, my grandpa. And he played clarinet and he played a violin, or, or as, as we call it in Scotland, a fiddle. Oh, really? And, and, and there was lots of photographs, black and white photographs of him in his, in his tuxedo with his, with his orchestra, with, you know, slicked down uh, hair, you know, of 1940s, 1950s photographs. And I just thought it was amazing. And he plays clarinet. And, um, but in the meantime, at home, my mom, uh, who used to be a singer, would play just loads of great music, a lot of Motown and a lot of stacks. Um, and the radio was always on. So that's how I kind of fell in love with music. And at the age of, uh, I started collecting records when I was about six or seven, you know, T-Rex, right. The Sweet. Um, there's some, some people we can't mention anymore. Gary Glitter. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> wait, wait. Why are we looking back? Like, wait, is somebody coming in the room? Wait, no, 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 just, just wait, Graham, theatrical. Graham, we can't say that. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> And then um, used to watch, we had a TV show in the UK called Top of the Pops. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. That show. Yeah. And that was, that was essential view. So I just loved music and, and, and the kind of, at the age of 11, my grandpa, his arthritis was so bad. He had to give up playing and he gave me his clarinet and I couldn't believe this. My grandpa, who I adored, was giving me his clarinet. So I, I started clarinet lessons and then ended up in the school orchestra but of course, this was like at the age of 13, 14, when you start discovering girls and you get into fashion and you see Roxy music on top of the pops ah. and you go, that's what I want to do. And then you discover uh, the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Sex Pistols make you look back and discover the New York Dolls and um, Iggy and the Stooges and that's when you think, all right, I want to play saxophone. So guess what? I got a Saturday job and I was the envy of everyone in my school. I got the Saturday job in the local independent record store in Kirkcaldy in Scotland, right? And that was like an education because I got the job because I was always in there buying new stuff, right? And used to go there after school. And one, one day after school, they said, hey, you're in here all the time. You, you buy good music. Do you want to help us out? And then join a Saturday job. And that meant just getting to hear anything and everything. But I've always had eclectic tastes. So I, I love punk rock because it was dangerous and it was angry, but also because all my friends liked progressive rock and I just wanted to be different, right? But while I was enjoying The Clash and looking back and discovering the New York Dolls, and, and by the way, rest in peace, Sylvain Sylvain, who who left us the other week, you know, but um, I was also in the record shop, you know, I remember like the day uh, I Feel Love, Donna Summer arrived, 1977, I was 14. So in amongst the punk rock in the shop, you'd put on I Feel Love, the 12-inch version, and it'd be like, whoa, what the hell? This is mind-blowing. So I've always had eclectic taste. So I managed to save up money, buy a saxophone, and I got kind of kicked out of the school orchestra for 
not reading the music. I, I, I would learn the parts and play it, but I really could, the, the conductor would go, Park, you're not reading the music. Because you could tell I was playing the right notes, but not following his cues and huh. not reading the music. So instead of going, do, 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 I was kind of jazzing up, but you know, like, did, did it. Did, <laughs> you doing your own rendition, right? Exactly. Yeah. So then I started playing in bands. Um, and then, of course, my parents, uh, my dad changed jobs and we moved to the East Midlands. So I was living in Scotland, born in Aberdeen, brought up near Edinburgh. But parents moved to the East Midlands. I stayed to finish school and I followed them down uh, and ended up in Nottingham playing saxophone in bands, some pretty good bands, bands that got attention of some record labels. And then, by chance, the local record shop in Nottingham that I was always in. Wait, 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 reverse back. Which bands were picked up by, by uh, record labels? No, we, no we, didn't. we weren't picked up. We, got, we had people come in and check us out. We supported some, some, some people as well. But I said, listen, that's another story for another time. You know, or another podcast, I think. Um, oh, so you know why everybody, you know why? Because everybody loves stardom. Is, is it any big? Just is there any really big one that got picked up? No, no, no. We had a couple of records out. And we did some some tours and stuff, but nothing. Wait, nothing you massive. were a rock band? Where what? Sorry, you were in a rock band. It wasn't a rock band. It was a kind of like uh, rocky no, type funk. Like remember, like bands like Orange Juice. Sure, you know, like you know, rip it up. That kind of funk. A certain ratio, that type of vibe. That's what that's what we did. Oh, wow. Anyway, I, I, so while I was doing that in Nottingham, I was hanging out in a record shop called Selector Disc. And again, I couldn't believe my luck. One day I'm in the record shop and the manager goes, you're always in here. Are you free now? I said, why? Well, we've got, we're short staffed. Do you want to help out behind the counter? And I went, well, yeah, I did this as a kid. So I knew how everything worked. And I ended up getting a full-time job there. And they put me in charge of the singles and second-hand department, right? Now, imagine that. Exactly. You look at the... When I say second-hand, you, I know, because people would come in and go, hey, I've got all these old disco records that I don't want anymore. And I'd be like... Bingo. Nobody really wants these. I'll give you a few bucks for them, you know? But have them for myself. But equally, people would come in with classic rock albums, right? Yeah. Like Love, Arthur Lee's Love, or The Doors, or... Or old, there's an old compilation uh, series called Pebbles, which was late sixties garage punk, right? Rare as hen's teeth. And this guy comes in, and I said, "Oh, I'll take them off you. Nobody wants them." So I was getting all these amazing records for myself and building up this huge record collection while playing in a band. Best job in the world. Well, anyway, the owner of the record shop, his office was on my floor, right, and his door was always open. Yeah. So he could he, he could hear the music that I because I was in charge of that floor. So when my uh, colleagues were like, "Can't we put the new Sisters of Mercy album on?" I'm like, "No, I want to listen. <laughs> no way. I want to no. no, I want to listen to this old uh, disco compilation, you know, from 1975. You know, I want to. So so um, one day he came back from lunch and said, "I've bought a nightclub," and we're like, "What nightclub have you bought?" So I've bought the Ad Lib Club. Now, wait a minute. The Ad Lib what kills me when he says buy a nightclub it's not like he just spent 500 new pounds to buy a club this is a big thing to do it was yeah well see in, in those days this is early 80s 83 and you know it, people, clubs in nottingham this is nottingham you had the ritzy ballroom which is a big commercial club and and, and other commercial clubs but 
if you wanted to hear really kind of um, underground music or stuff that was a bit different, you probably have to go to London, right? Or wait for, or go to a club called Rock City in Nottingham on student night. So anyway, he said he'd bought the Ad Lib Club and we were like, you're crazy. That's a, what was called a blues club, a reggae club. And it was literally, it was great. It was the only, you would sometimes go in there if you had the courage, plucked up the courage and had a few beers, you'd go in there with your friends late at night and it would be thick with smoke and just played amazing dub reggae, really like you could feel in the bowels of your body. Uh, and we said, why have you bought that? I said, well, don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rename it the Garage Club and I'm going to relaunch it as this cool underground club playing great you know, music. Um, and we're like, well, who, who's, who's going to DJ? And he said, you are. And I said, whoa, whoa, hang on. I'm not a DJ. He goes, no, no, you are. The, the music you play in the store is fantastic. And you play in a band. So just think of it in the same way. Now, I was 19. I'd never DJed. I don't, the only time I DJed is it's like if, if you went clubbing, everyone would be back to my house and I would take charge of the music, right? And everyone used to love what I played. And I didn't want to lose my job in the record store. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And pretty much immediately, I thought, oh, this is for me. This is exactly what I want to do because I got more money than I did in the band because I didn't have to share the money with anyone. I didn't have to hire a van and help set the equipment up. I didn't have to rehearse in a cold basement of a, of a bar. Um, I didn't have to pay, we didn't have to pay the drummer's girlfriend to do the door and the guest list, right? You had no expense, you had no, nothing. Exactly. And uh, I got... Oh, but wait a minute, hang on, Graham. Yeah. You know, let's talk about this for a second. You're in the record shop, so the record shop's becoming something comfortable for you. It's a wage every week, you're comfortable. The fear yeah. of becoming a DJ, you must have got nervous. You're like, wait a minute, before, of course, before you experience it, but that initial well, reaction was like, oh my God. I didn't, I didn't want to do it, but I thought, I love my record shop job. I don't want to lose that. So um, he said, you can borrow some stuff from the, from, the, from the shop, from the store, and you can go home early and get some records. And I, and I remember going home and going to the, the grocery store around the corner and saying, you know those wooden boxes you have out the front that you put vegetables and fruit in? Do you have any I can borrow to put my records in? And, you know, so I, so I mean, this was this is this wasn't like New York where you where you could go and buy containers for for vinyl. This was the UK, and so so things like that didn't exist. And I and I got a taxi to the club, and 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 the the, the decks were two belt driven Citronic decks with a built in mixer oh, behind the bar. Yeah, that's that one system, right? The setup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I just and I all I did was play uh, old soul, old funk, uh, classic disco, and then stuff in the charts. But the twelve-inch club mixes like ABC, Human League, uh, New Order, Talking Heads, Blondie, uh, mixing it all up, and just basically played music that I loved, and people loved what I played. And I wasn't nervous because I was just playing the music. And meanwhile, people were coming upstairs to the to the dance floor and starting to dance. And before I knew it, it was 2 a.m. And that was it. And at the end of the night, I got 25 pounds to myself, right? 25 pounds. And after about a few weeks of this, I had to make a decision because we had gigs coming up for the band. 
I still carried on rehearsing with the band. And uh, I had to make a decision, DJ or play saxophone and sing in a band. And it was difficult because that's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to be in a band, a singer in a band. And I was. But this DJ thing was such fun. And it was making me more money. So I thought um, I could always go back to being in a band. So it didn't go down very well, but I, I gave up and became a DJ. Um, this was 83, 84. And very quickly, within two couple of years, it's when the, the kind of Planet Rock, Africa Bambata, Johnson Crew, um, Electro thing started to come out of, out of New York. And being the singles buyer, I could get all these in the shop and play them in the club. And then, of course, so that was really exciting time, you know, playing hip-hop bebop by Man Parish. Wow. Right? Yeah, fresh. And, look, and then looking yep. for the perfect beat by Africa Bambata, but then also going back to Talking Heads and a bit of Blondie and, and, and New Order. And then, of course, out of that, you start to get, as you before we came on air, you would, you, you did sort of like Run DMC and then Big Daddy Kane and Roxanne Chante and all that stuff. And then, and then of course, in 85, on the phone to the distributor, oh, one last thing, Graham, I've got these uh, 12-inch singles from Chicago and Detroit. I don't know what they are. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't know what yeah. they are. Just give, me, just give me one of each. If I don't like them, I'll send them back. And, and, and the, one of the first, obviously, this was the early house tracks from Chicago and, and the early techno tracks from Detroit. And then eventually there was stuff from New York in there as well. But the, the the first track that really struck an nerve with me, I put on in the in the store, was "Music Is the Key" by JM Silk, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is incredible!" Because it's Keith Nanali's soulful voice over this robotic, um, stripped down but funky electro track that, that was it was one of the first Steve Silk early tracks, and. I, and I, when I played that in the, and of course all the early house stuff is about 120 BPM, and of course all that early hip hop stuff was also kind of 115 to 120 BPM, and so they all kind of mixed together. But then, as you know, the 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 the, the odd 12 inch from Chicago, Detroit, New York, became more than the odd 12 inch. It was loads and loads and loads, and it took over. And then by late '86, early '87 house started to take, to take over and then of course as we know by summer 88 it started to kind of take over the whole of of, of the uk but now, was still in scotland playing at that time yeah there was a club in aberdeen called fever which is a legendary club with an amazing um one of the first kind of arguably one of the, the, the finest and one of the first uh women djs in the uk called jackie morrison and when 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 People in Aberdeen found out that I was originally from Aberdeen. Then they wanted to book me, so I started going up to Aberdeen. But there was the garage in Nottingham. There was the lead mill in Sheffield. There was a night in Sheffield called Jive Turkey. Then I uh, I ended up... So so I, basically, by by 88, I ended up doing Wednesday nights in Sheffield, Thursday nights in Leicester, Friday nights at Hacienda in Manchester, Saturday nights... In a minute. We're going to get to Hacienda. Yeah, Saturday nights at the garage in Nottingham. And, um, and I was absolutely loyal to my residencies so as the scene started to grow and people started to hear about me and i gave up working in the record shop oh, wow. i used to get people had I, we had to i had to because you're doing a good job that's a solid job how could you give that well, job that you that's what my dad said he couldn't believe it and i had to sit down and go but dad 
by doing these four gigs a week, because by now my £25 had gone up quite a bit. Yeah. And by, by doing these four gigs a week, that's double what I get for a week in the record shop. And dad, people are trying to get me to work Sundays, Mondays and Tuesdays because I'm not available Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But it took him a few years to, to kind of accept that, 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 that I'd done the right I, thing. I know, you know? Why. I know why with that generation was the same with my parents. They never yeah. that, that a DJ can be an occupation professionally. Well, no, exactly. Because when I gave up the record shop, uh, I had to go and think, well, this is my business now. I, I'm a DJ. And so I went to my bank and said, look, you know, my bank account, I, I, I need to have a separate bank account for my business. And they go, oh, you've set a business up. And what is that business, Mr. Park? And bear in mind, I was like early 20s, maybe 21, 22. And I said, well, I'm, I'm a disc jockey. I'm a DJ. And they kind of like, that's not a business, you know, that, what do you mean? And I, I had to, I said, well, forget it then, forget it. And I went around every bank in Nottingham and got the same reaction apart from one bank, which I'm still with now, the NatWest Bank, the, 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 the woman in there said, okay, take a seat and I'll get our business manager to come and talk to you. And he was great. He said, right, how, how, I can help you do this and give you some tips and advice about how to run a business. And I've been with the same bank. Um, ever since so but oh, you're right people you're really loyal you are really I know, but but the thing is you, you're right though because now I, I as a senior lecturer i can teach people not 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 so much about djing but about working in the music industry that's whether right. that's whether that is behind a mixing desk in a studio or at a live concert or whether it is radio production or whether it's television production or, or whatever lots of creative industry stuff that people like older generations would say well that's not a job it is a job that's it's, and it's big big business around the world i mean in the uk the the, the live sector is worth billions of pounds to the uk economy everyone and then they told all of you to go get retrained I heard that. I know. I know. Look, for, for so example. Hurt. I went, what? A billion dollars? How so, do you retrain someone that has been doing this his whole life? Exactly. I've been doing this my whole life. And, and, and I know we're fast forward in the story here, but at the moment, I have got n no income from, from clubs, from live shows, for, from DJing at all. But the government, um, I, I don't get a penny. I can't furlough myself. I can't, I don't qualify for self-employment support. Absolutely nothing. Thank goodness I've got a very small uh, senior lecturer salary, which helps. My wife's got a full-time job. That helps. And we'll be all right for a little while yet if we start getting back to normal somewhere. But you're right, it's crazy that someone like me who's paid no end of tax and national insurance all my life, I, I had to pay a big tax bill at the end of January for, for 2019's earnings. If I don't pay that, I get fined. I get uh, a red flag against my um, account. Um, but no, I had to pay it, but I don't get any help whatsoever. And it absolutely makes no sense at all. And it's a massive, massive industry. And I'm not the only one. There are people who work behind the scenes and freelancers and people who work in nightclubs who get nothing, absolutely nothing from, from our government. It's, it's an outrage. And that's there why you go. back to my father saying to me, are you going to be on the corner with your hat looking for change so you can, like, can play like the sax? I'll never forget when he said that to me. Now, I did try busking when I lived in Nottingham before I got the job in the record shop. I did try busking 
for a while with my tenor saxophone, but I hated it because, you know, what you got a saxophone on its own. It's great if you're, if you're on your own and you're rehearsing your scales and doing some tunes and doing some riffs, great. But as soon as you, a saxophone is on its own in front of an audience, it's a bit boring. Yeah. A saxophone needs to be part of something else. Unless, and I, and I apologise if there are any saxophone players who play in nightclubs, I really don't, I can't be doing with it. And I, There are some very talented saxophone players out there I've heard in nightclubs, but I, I, I'm sorry, you cannot play with a DJ like me who mixes because you don't know if the key is going to change. How do you know? Right. And I've heard saxophone players go, lit, 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 and then the DJ will very cleverly switch the key, you know, as, as uh, you know, as the drums break down and then you, they bring in the next record and the key changes, it might go up three semitones or something. And the saxophone player doesn't, oh my God, and, and it's a mess. Or you, you play like uh, an instrumental of a well-known track because you're building up to bring it in the vocal and the saxophone player is ruining it. No, I just, I'm sorry. I, I know people do it and they make a living out of it and, and, and good luck to you and it's fantastic. But personally, it doesn't work. I tell you what doesn't work either. And this is a true story. In the early 90s, I was playing in a club in Bournemouth. And the promoter said, Do you, what's your view on people playing instruments? I went, percussions, great. As long as, they sound, as long as they're playing along in the same records I am, you know what I mean? You get some percussionists who are like, whoa, what are you doing? You, you know, but a good percussionist will always enhance a DJ set, I believe. Oh, right? Agreed. And... Yeah, and this guy said, oh, great. And so he, he plays guitar. He plays bass guitar. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> bass guitar? You do, you do know I'm playing house music and, and dance music that's, that's, very, <laughs> that's very bass heavy. What do you mean bass? Oh, you have to hear him. I don't want to hear him. Oh, he'll be very upset. So I actually went, okay, let's hear it. It was awful. He plugged, because he plugged his bass guitar straight into the mixer into oh, the mic input no, no, i'm no. like no if you're gonna do it do it properly so that was that was quite quite funny everyone but, here's one for you graham how about the guy that thinks he can sing he's gonna sing oh on listen i know that is annoying um you get the i mean oh, again I, I know i know Quiet. you see I you. know, I know. You exactly, exactly. You. But you see, as 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 my career has progressed, and I'm sure there's a lot of DJs, you have to you have to be have specific things in your contract. And I have to say that, but, but I don't like to piss people off. So you say like, um, um, the promoter agrees that there will be no live musical accompaniment to um, Graham's set unless agreed in advance. Yeah, right. right. So, Exactly. So, for example, if someone goes, well, you remember Mike, the percussionist? You played with him last time you were in Hull. I go, yeah, Mike, he was really good. Yeah, great. I'm more than happy to have him, him, you know. But then when you turn up and the percussionist's got like 17 drums and 95 cymbals, you're like, no. But, the, the you know, there's a guy called Pav. Oh, I played with Pav a few gigs yeah. in the world, man. He's the bomb. He is. He's got like two or three pieces. He knows, he knows how to keep it exactly. You he keeps in time, but he also shuts up at the right point. Where's Pav? So he, Pav up. Because <laughs> he knows, because he'll, he'll go, oh, I know. And then he'll look at you and, he, and you can just look at him and he'll go, okay. And he'll stop. Or he can go 
on a tip, go, go really get into it, and you can bring down the volume, and he can hear that you're doing that, and he'll go and do a little freestyle, and then you bring it back in. You know, nothing worse than a a, D, a percussionist who's good, and you think this is great. So you bring the volume down to let them freestyle, and they stop and look at you and go, "What's happening?" That's like, no, this is your this is your moment, right? Do not think. Do as you be as English would say, do your worst. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into something very important. Two questions I have. One, we want to know about the hacienda because everybody wants to know. But the more importantly than the hacienda is one part of the story. I remember getting that double album, Sound of the North, with Voodoo yes. Decoy. Now, yeah. I remember reading in there. Your name was mentioned along with Mike Pickering in the Hacienda. I wrote the sleeve. I wrote the sleeve That's notes. That's correct. How did that album come about? Because here's the thing about that album. Tony Evans comes back from England. Or I remember I went to England. I heard Voodoo Ray in that summer mm. around that time. Mm. He comes back. He starts running this record. No one can get it. You can only get it on your album. What was the deal with this at that time? I, I don't know. It was just, I, thought, I, I don't know. I can't remember. It was a deconstruction release. That's right. Mike Pickering. Mike Pickering was 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 kind of the, the main person behind that. Um, but it was just, there were so many people. Because house music kind of exploded in, in, in uh, the north of England, the Midlands and the north of England and, and Scotland. And I'd just like to reiterate that for our, Anyone who's watching in our the young, southeast of England, audience. Well, yeah, but anyone watching from the southeast of England, it's a fact. In the Midlands of the North, it was going off. And why? First. And why? Well, because of the hacienda, you know. Not only that, but I, it was, you know, also the Motown sound and the soulful stuff worked. And the house. Well, yeah, exactly, no, exactly. So um, people were, were, were hearing what I was playing in Nottingham, and Mike was playing in in, in uh, at hacienda, and what the Jive Turkey guys were playing in, in, in Sheffield. And technology, um, you know, they were, they, were, they, were, they were reading that people like Marshall Jefferson um, and uh, Derek May and Kevin Saunderson were, were, were making this music on cheap synthesizers. I say cheap synthesizers. They were still pretty expensive. And people were they just having a... Cheap. They sound like toys. Exactly, yeah. But that was, the beauty, that was the beauty of them. And, of course, a lot of people found that their older brothers and sisters had had... Uh, Roland SH-101s because they used to be in bands that were trying to be like the Human League or trying to make electronic music and this and, and drum machines and they started messing around and making things and it, it was the, the punk rock spirit of do it yourself, make your own music and put it out on your own independent label. That was only like 10 years ago that that started happening and people started pressing their own stuff up and, and Mike and Deconstruction um, just put all this great stuff together on this North album, asked me to do the sleeve notes, and uh, it just took off from there. But Voodoo Ray, I mean, the first time I heard that, when you know Gerald knocking at the door of the DJ box at the Hacienda, got this record. Oh my God, you know, just incredible. And and the thing is, some records don't age well, but Voodoo Ray sounds as fresh today as it did in 1988. Why? Because it's unique and it's it's amazing. And you know, some people have some people have copied it, some people have sampled it, some people have remixed it. But you know, Voodoo Ray. Sorry. No, exactly. Voodoo Ray should never have been remixed. I tell you, the, the, I mean, I love a remix. I love a remix. It's done respectfully. Uh, but but every now and then, you, you hear a record that's been remixed, 
And you're like, no, just please don't. I, I mean, I mean, recently a lot of the Easy Street catalog has been uh, remixed, and I love the new Michael Gray remix of the Divas In and Out of My Life. Incredible. Yes, I agree. But the, but the remixes of one of my top five club tunes ever, Mafumbe by Cultural Vibe. No, don't do it. Leave it. No. Especially the, especially the B-side from the original Tony Humphrey Zanzibar. That's at the bar. Yes. How do you trust that? That's just exactly. Magical. It's just it's like three Why minutes of Tony just, Humphries. Come on up, Tony. <laughs> I know you should get Tony on. Tony, yeah, he's an to me. He said no, and he's my friend. I hope we'll get him. Oh, we'll get we'll, him. you got to get him. You got to get him. Yeah. So Hacienda, the 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 iconic club that it was in Manchester. Can you give us the inception? Yeah. Who's behind it? And yeah. how you step into the life of Hacienda and where it takes you. Right. Well, as, as someone who played in bands and worked in a record shop, I was a massive fan of Factory Records, the, the independent record label in Manchester that Tony Wilson, the late Tony Wilson set up, home of Joy Division, home of a certain ratio, home of orchestral maneuvers in the dark, although they were, although they were from Liverpool or to be more precise, the Wirral. Um, and I, I loved that label. And when they opened the club, Factory Records, along with New Order, and their manager, Rob Gretton, and a couple of other people, uh, Alan Rasmus, um, opened a nightclub that was uh, had cutting-edge design. Ben Kelly uh, designed it, and Peter Savile did all the artwork because he was doing all the Factory Records artwork. I used to get... I had to go and see this club, so I used to get the train up to uh, Nottingham, sorry, to, to Manchester from Nottingham and go and see bands and think this is an amazing club. But, this but it was a live. Nottingham? Is that what you're well, saying? Yeah, I was still in Nottingham. And this was 1982. It opened in, on the 21st of May, 1982. And it was mainly a live venue. They, they had the odd club night. Uh, Greg Wilson um, was one of the early DJs there. But they weren't really, it wasn't really a club venue. It was more of a live venue. And um, I... I, I still love going there. And in fact, there was a, a TV show, uh, to, to go slightly off topic, there was a TV show uh, in the UK called The Tube, which was based uh, at the TV studio in Newcastle. I was a researcher on The Tube, and The Tube did a show from the Hacienda, and that was Madonna's first ever UK appearance, right? Hang on a second. Let me, let me just explain this to everybody. You heard what he just says? I was a researcher. I never knew this either. I'm sitting- no, you know what? I always forget it. It's a very small part yeah, of my life. Yeah, I, true house stories on earth, gold dust. This well, is gold dust. I, I always forgot this because I... Researcher, um, true house stories, bring to tea. He's researching Madonna. Wait, explain what a researcher does. So they Well, basically, there was a TV show called The Tube and they put an advert out. They wanted new, new presenters. And I thought, I, I could do that. So I applied for the job as a presenter and I got shortlisted and got an audition with and there was a guy called terry christian who i met he ended up he, he didn't get the gig either but we went up to, to the newcastle and we auditioned and did camera stuff and introduced bands and then you get a letter going we're really sorry you haven't got the gig however we'd like to ask you to be you because you live in nottingham would you be our researcher for the east midlands and what that meant was i had to look out for bands and uh, in the East Midlands that I thought would be good enough to go on national television. And there was a band in the East Midlands, a band based in Nottingham called Fatal Charm, that were kind of a, an electronic band. 
And uh, if you look online, they made some amazing music and um, they, they were on the tube and, and I would get paid um, expenses to get the train up to Newcastle after work uh, on a Friday or finish early on a Friday and go and hang out in, in this TV studio while the tube broadcast live and and bands that were on there you had like uh simple minds u2 uh <laughs> right, fatal charm YouTube. It was, uh, frankie goes to hollywood it was just Relax. all the big bands of the time yeah, yeah all that uh, but then they did a they did a, a broadcast from hacienda and madonna was in the country it was at madonna's first ever uk club appearance live appearance tv appearance at hacienda now uh, Tony Wilson, the late Tony Wilson, uh, asked her about this um, many years ago at some industry dinner, and he went up to said, "Madonna, I, you know, Tony Wilson, at my nightclub, the Hacienda. That was your first ever British appearance on television or in a club." And she just looked at him and said, "Like, I'm sorry, I don't recall." You know, typical, typical Madonna. Um, but um, anyway, so the Hacienda, I was aware of it. She recalled. She knew damn well. You never yeah, forget. Listen, everybody, you yeah. never forget when you do your first ever. First no, time. Of course you do. Like I I I remember my I remember the first vividly. Time you never forget it. I know. I vividly remember my first ever gig in New York, but we'll come to that. We'll come yes. to that later. But I I vividly remember my first ever gig at Hacienda. So basically, I was aware of the Hacienda. And then um in 1987, uh, ID magazine. Um, contacted me and said, we're doing a, a feature on this new breed of up-and-coming DJ who plays obscure music and has a big following. Right. And we'd like to invite you to come down and be part of this article and come down to London for a photo shoot. And they said, uh, there's going to be Nicky Holloway, Mark Moore, Jay Strongman, Judge Jules, Jazzy B, Jazzy M, Norman J. You know, all, all of us fresh-faced, early, 20, mid-20-year-old people. And, and, and they all said, and then there's uh, and Mike Pickering. I went, Mike Pickering, I know that name. He's he's the guy who did the T-Coy record. And before that, he was in a band called Quando Quango. Oh, and yeah. yeah, exactly. Produced by the late, great Mark Caymans, right? So yeah. I thought, oh, great. So I, I said, yeah, I'll come. So I, I came down to, to London. And I'm, that's when I first met Mike at this photo shoot. And if you, it's somewhere online, it's all, it's all of us climbing, clambering over scaffolding, really kind of cool ID magazine, black and white shots. And Mike and I met, uh, hit it off. And we, 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 we realized we were the only DJs who weren't from London or the Southeast. And we both had this little thing that we thought, yeah, it's really bad. The, the whole of the British media is so biased towards London and the Southeast. It's like they ignore what's happening outside the M25, which is like, the motorway that goes around London. And we agreed this, right? And we shared a taxi. Uh, he was getting the train home from uh, Euston to, to Manchester, and I was getting the train home from St Pancras to Nottingham. So we shared a taxi to the Euston Road and went for a coffee and exchanged our phone numbers and kept in touch and agreed that we should do something to, 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 to um, let the world know that there is a – let London know that there's loads of stuff happening in the north that, that they were, weren't writing about. And this was before house music had taken off in, in London, It was, but it was big in the north. So he got in touch with me and said, let's do a night at Hacienda. Let's call it the Northern House Review. Let's invite all the media up. Now, I, at the time, 
um, had a record label called Submission and I was releasing music under the name Groove. So he said, why don't we put make a t- deconstruction uh, night and a submission night and put some of our acts on and, and you can come and DJ with me. I said, yeah. So this was a, a midweek in a February of 1988 and the place was packed. Tikoi headline, they played live. The band I was in called Groove, we, we performed live with our two tracks, uh, Submit to the Beat and... Um, I forget what the other one was. And um, I DJed and it was amazing. And all the magazines and all the press came up and wrote about this. Anyway, I couldn't believe it because um, I'd never seen the Hacienda so busy and I'd never seen it as a as a club. Right. It, you know, it's but, but it was a club night, but with music on, with bands on as well. Anyway, um, that was a, a great success. And then about a couple of months later, Mike called me up and said, I'm going on holiday for three weeks. And based on you know what I know about you and the fact that you play very similar music to me in Nottingham and, and because we work together in February at Hacienda will you come and cover my Friday night while I'm on holiday I said of course he goes good I thought you'd say that one thing though he says what one thing you have to promise me you you have to come up on the Friday before I go away I said why I've had to take the night off. He goes, you have to. I said, but why? I've, I've done, I've been to Hacienda. You said we play. He says, no, 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 no. Things are a little different. I'm like, what? Please. So I, so I went up to, to Manchester and checked in a hotel and went to Hacienda. And then when I went in, oh my God, it, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before in my life. Because for once, for, 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 for one, it was, it was steamy, like and sweaty and hot. And everybody, I'd never seen anything like it. Everyone had this mad, wild look in their eyes and everyone was wearing like baggy clothes and this smiley was everywhere and the band, everyone was wearing bandanas. And I went up to the DJ box, knocked on the door going, oh my God, what's going on? Mike opened the door and he had this wild look in his eyes as well. He said, come in, come in. And of course, within about half an hour, I, I realized what the difference was and it was, it was making sure my kids aren't uh, eavesdropping. Of course, the, the difference was like ecstasy had arrived, right? Ecstasy. Yes, Eve. Right? Yes. And then I suddenly realized why he'd asked me to come up. And and so therefore, uh, I came up and then I came up later as well. No, but then I um, totally understood what was happening. And then, so when I went up the following week, I knew what to expect. So I did three weeks on a Friday at Hacienda on my own to the most amazing crowd. I, I played from doors open till doors closed. And I and I played, you know, a lot of house music and some hip hop and mixed it up. And I and you know what? Of all the nights I ever did at Hacienda, those three that I did on my own to cover for my I remember those better than any other night. So then Mike comes back from holiday and he calls me up and said, Listen, uh, I hear it was a great success. I want you to come and join me on a Friday at Hacienda. And I'm like, no shit, what? What? So I did. Yeah, yeah I did. I mean, you must have really shit a pill from that moment, right? They were like, well, I'm getting the job. Come mm. on. That's a huge listen. I, a listen, big- I took it all, I took it all in my stride because um everything up until that point in my my life, in my career, I I I I, I kind of knew what I kind of wanted to do, but all these things kept happening. I didn't I got asked, do you want to work in the record shop when I was at school? Hang yeah. On, on, but you have do to- you want you know how hard it was in those days to get those type of jobs that you were getting? You were getting like no, I know, I know. I was aware that people were like, 
I'm so envious of you. I'm so jealous. Because the people are dying just to get a chance to get in the door. You're already in the booth. I know, but people, but people say to me, how did you get this job? How did you get this DJ yes, gig? I'm like, this I say, is well, I'm going to go work down at the till for the get for the petrol station. These are like dynamite diamond jobs. I know, but the thing is, I got asked, "Do you want to do it?" And I was like, uh, "No, yeah, I'll <laughs> no. do it." You know, no, I don't want to do it. At no oh, point, yeah. like I say, at no point did I say, "Give me, please, let me work in the record shop." I, I just got asked, "Please, let me be a DJ." No, I didn't want to be a DJ. I got asked, and at no point was I ever going, "Hey, Mike, listen." Uh, if, 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 there's, if there's ever an opportunity to play at Hacienda, please let me know. He asked me. And, and then again, uh, when the Hacienda closed in 1997, Cream were on the phone going, right,